Chapter Twenty Two of Clotel. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Clotel by William Wells Brown. Chapter Twenty Two. A Ride in the Stagecoach. We shall now return to Cincinnati, where we left Clotel, preparing to go to Richmond in search of her daughter. Tired of the disguise in which she had escaped, she threw it off on her arrival at Cincinnati, but being assured that not a shadow of safety would attend her visit to a city in which she was well known, unless in some disguise, she again resumed men's apparel on leaving Cincinnati. This time she had more the appearance of an Italian or Spanish gentleman. In addition to the fine suit of black cloth, a splendid pair of dark false whiskers covered the sides of her face, while the curling moustache found its place upon the upper lip. From practice she had become accustomed to high-heeled boots, and could walk without creating any suspicion as regarded her sex. It was a cold evening that Clotel arrived at Wheeling, and took a seat in the coach going to Richmond. She was already in the state of Virginia, yet a long distance from the place of her destination. A ride in a stagecoach over an American road is unpleasant under the most favorable circumstances. But now that it was winter and the roads unusually bad, the journey was still more dreary. However, there were eight passengers in the coach, and I need scarcely say that such a number of genuine Americans could not be together without whiling away the time somewhat pleasantly. Besides Clotel, there was an elderly gentleman, with his two daughters, one apparently under twenty years, the other a shade above. The pale, spectacled face of another slim, tall man, with a white neckerchief, pointed him out as a minister. The rough-featured, dark countenance of a stout-looking man, with a white hat on one side of his head, told that he was from the sunny south. There was nothing remarkable about the other two, who might pass for ordinary American gentlemen. It was on the eve of a presidential election, when every man is thought to be a politician. Clay, Van Buren, and Harrison were the men who expected the endorsement of the Baltimore Convention. "'Who does this town go for?' asked the old gent with the ladies, as the coach drove up to an inn where groups of persons were waiting for the latest papers. "'We are divided,' cried the voice of one of the outsiders. "'Well, do you think we will get the majority here?' continued the old gent. "'Can't tell very well. I go for old tip,' was the answer from without. This brought up the subject fairly before the passengers, and when the coach again started, a general discussion commenced, in which all took a part except Clotel and the young ladies. Some were for Clay, some for Van Buren, and others for Old Tip. The coach stopped to take in a real farmer-looking man, who no sooner entered when he was saluted with, "'Do you go for Clay?' "'No,' was the answer. "'Do you go for Van Buren?' "'No.' "'Well, then, of course, you will go for Harrison.' "'No.' Why, don't you mean to work for any of them at the election? No. Well, who will you work for? asked one of the company. I work for Betsy and the children, and I have a hard job of it at that, replied the farmer without a smile. This answer, as a matter of course, set the new corner down, as one upon whom the rest of the passengers could crack their jokes with the utmost impunity. Are you an odd fellow? asked one. No, sir, I've been married more than a month. I mean, do you belong to the order of odd fellows? No, no, I belong to the order of married men. Are you a mason? No, I am a carpenter by trade. Are you a son of temperance? Bother you no, know. I am a son of Mr. John Gosling. 
After a hearty laugh in which all joined, the subject of temperance became the theme for discussion. In this the spectacled gent was at home. He soon showed that he was a New Englander, and went the whole length of the main law. The minister was about having it all his own way, when the southerner, in the white hat, took the opposite side of the question. "'I don't bet a red cent on these teetotalers,' said he, and at the same time looking round to see if he had the approbation of the rest of the company. "'Why?' asked the minister. "'Because they are a set who are afraid to spend a cent. They are a bad lot, the whole on them.' It was evident that the white-hat gent was an uneducated man. The minister commenced in full earnest, and gave an interesting account of the progress of temperance in Connecticut, the state from which he came, proving that a great portion of the prosperity of the state was attributable to the disuse of intoxicating drinks. Everyone thought the white hat had got the worst of the argument, and that he was settled for the remainder of the night. But not he. He took fresh courage and began again. Now, said he, I have just been on a visit to my uncles in Vermont, and I guess I knows a little about these here teetotalers. You see, I went up there to make a little stay of a fortnight. I got there at night, and they seemed glad to see me, but they didn't give me a bit of anything to drink. Well, thinks I to myself, the jig's up. I shan't get any more liquor till I get out of the state. We all sat up till twelve o'clock that night, and I heard nothing but talk about the juvenile temperance army, the band of hope, the rising generation, the female Dorcas Temperance Society, the nun such, and I don't know how many other names they didn't have. As I had taken several pretty large cocktails before I entered the state, I thought upon the whole that I would not spite for the want of liquor. The next morning I commenced writing back to my friends and telling them what's what. Aunt Polly said, Well, Johnny, I suppose you're giving them a pretty account of us all here. Yes, said I. I'm telling them if they want anything to drink when they come up here, they had better bring it with them. Oh, said Auntie, they would search their boxes. Can't bring any spirits in the state. Well, I was saying, just as I got my letters finished and was going to the post office, for Uncle's house was two miles from the town, Auntie says, Johnny, I suppose you'll try to get a little something to drink in town, won't you? Says I, I suppose it's no use. No, said she, you can't. It ain't to be had nohow, for love nor money. So just as I was putting on my hat, Johnny, cries out auntie. What, says I. Now I'll tell you, I don't want you to say nothing about it, but I keeps a little rum to rub my head with, for I am troubled with a headache. Now I don't want you to mention it for the world, but I'll give you a little taste. The old man is such a teetotaler that I should never hear the last of it, and I would not like for the boys to know it. They are members of the cold water army. Auntie now brought out a black bottle and gave me a cup and told me to help myself, which I assure you I did. I now felt ready to face the cold. As I was passing the barn, I heard Uncle thrashing oats, so I went to the door and spoke to him. "'Come in, Johnny,' says he. "'No,' said I. "'I'm going to post some letters, for I was afraid that he would smell my breath if I went too near him.' "'Yes, yes, come in.' So I went in, and says he, "'It's now eleven o'clock. That's about the time you take your grog, I suppose, when you're at home.' "'Yes,' said I. I'm sorry for you, lad. You can't get anything up here. You can't even get it at the chemist's, except as medicine. And then you must let them mix it, and you take it in their presence. This is indeed hard, replied I. Well, it can't be helped, continued he, and it ought not to be if it could. It's best for society. People's better off without drink. I recollect when your father and I, thirty years ago, used to go out on a spree and spend more than half a dollar in a night. 
Then here's the rising generation. There's nothing like setting a good example. Look how healthy your cousins are. There's Benjamin. He never tasted spirits in his life. Oh, John, I would you are a teetotaler. I suppose, said I, I'll have to be one till I leave the state. Now, said he, John, I don't want you to mention it, for your aunt would go into hysterics if she thought there was a drop of intoxicating liquor about the place, and I would not have the boys to know it for anything. But I keep a little brandy to rub my joints for the rheumatics, and being it's you, I'll give you a little dust. So the old man went to one corner of the barn, took out a brown jug, and handed it to me. And I must say, it was a little, the best cognac that I had tasted for many a day. Says I, Uncle, you are a good judge of brandy. Yes, said he, I learned when I was young. So off I started for the post office. In returning, I thought I'd just go through the woods where the boys were chopping wood, and wait and go to the house with them when they went to dinner. I found them hot at work, but as merry as crickets. Well, Cousin John, are you done writing? Yes, answered I. Have you posted them? Yes. Hope you didn't go to any place inquiring for grog. No, I know it was no good to do that. I suppose a cocktail would taste good now. Well, I guess it would, says I. The three boys then joined in a hearty laugh. I suppose you have told them that we are a dry set up here. Well, I ain't told them anything else. Now, Cousin John, said Edward, if you won't say anything, we will give you a small taste. For mercy's sake, don't let mother or father know it. They are such rabid teetotalers that they would not sleep a wink to-night if they thought there was any spirits about the place. I am mum, says I, and the boys took a jug out of a hollow stump and gave me some first-rate peach brandy, and during the fortnight that I was in Vermont, with my teetotal relations, I was kept about as well cornered as if I had been among my hot-water friends in Tennessee. This narrative given by the white hat man was received with unbounded applause by all except the pale gent in spectacles, who showed, by the way in which he was running his fingers between his cravat and throat, that he did not intend to give it up so. The white hat gent was now the lion of the company. Oh, you did not get hold of the right teetotalers, said the minister. I can give you a tale worth a dozen of yours, continued he. Look at society in the States where temperance views prevail, and you will there see real happiness. The people are taxed less, the poorhouses are shut up for want of occupants, and extreme destitution is unknown. Everyone who drinks at all is liable to become an habitual drunkard. Yes, I said boldly, that no man living who uses intoxicating drinks is free from the danger of at least occasional, and if of occasional, ultimately of habitual excess. There seems to be no character, position, or circumstances that free men from the danger. I have known many young men of the finest promise, led by the drinking habit into vice, ruin, and early death. I have known many tradesmen whom it has made bankrupt. I have known Sunday scholars whom it has led to prison teachers, and even superintendents whom it has dragged down to profligacy. I have known ministers of high academic honors, of splendid eloquence, nay, of vast usefulness, whom it has fascinated and hurried over the precipice of public infamy with their eyes open and gazing with horror on their fate. I have known men of the strongest and clearest intellect and of vigorous resolution, whom it has made weaker than children and fools, gentlemen of refinement and taste, whom it has debased into brutes, poets of high genius, whom it has bound in a bondage worse than the galleys, and ultimately cut short their days. I have known statesmen, lawyers, and judges, whom it has killed, kind husbands and fathers, whom it has turned into monsters. I have known honest men, whom it has made villains, 
elegant and Christian ladies whom it has converted into bloated sots. "'But you talk too fast,' replied the white-hat man. "'You don't give a feller a chance to say nothing.' "'I heard you,' continued the minister, "'and now you hear me out. "'It is indeed wonderful how people become lovers of strong drink. "'Since years since, before I became a teetotaler, "'I kept spirits about the house, "'and I had a servant who was much addicted to the strong drink. "'He used to say that he could not make my boots shine "'without mixing the blacking with whiskey. "'So to satisfy myself that the whiskey was put in the blacking, one morning I made him bring the dish in which he kept the blacking and poured in the whiskey myself. And now, sir, what do you think? Why, well, I suppose your boots shine better than before, replied the white hat. No, continued the minister. He took the blacking out, and I watched him, and he drank down the whiskey, blacking and all. This turned the joke upon the advocate of strong drink, and he began to put his wits to work for arguments. You are from Connecticut, are you? asked the southerner. "'Yes, and we are an orderly, pious, peaceable people. "'Our holy religion is respected, "'and we do more for the cause of Christ "'than the whole southern states put together.' "'I don't doubt it,' said the white-hat gent. "'You sell wooden nutmegs and other spurious articles "'enough to do some good. "'You talk of your holy religion, "'but your robes' righteousness are woven at Lowell and Manchester. "'Your paradise is high percentum on factory stocks. "'Your palms of victory and crowns of rejoicing I triumphs over a rival party in politics, on the questions of banks and tariffs. If you could, you would turn heaven into Birmingham, make every angel a weaver, and with the eternal dinner looms and spindles drown all the anthems of the morning stars. Ah, I know you Connecticut people like a book. No, no, all hoss. You can't come it on me. This last speech of the rough-featured man again put him in the ascendant, and the spectacled gent once more ran his fingers between his cravat and throat, "'You live in Tennessee, I think?' said the minister. "'Yes,' replied the southerner. "'I used to live in Orleans, but now I claim to be a Tennessean.' "'You people of New Orleans are the most ungodly set in the United States,' said the minister. Taking a New Orleans newspaper from his pocket, he continued, "'Just look here. There are not less than three advertisements of bullfights to take place on the Sabbath. "'You people of the slave states have no regard for the Sabbath, religion, morality, or anything else intended to make mankind better. Here Clotel could have borne ample testimony, had she dared to have taken sides with the Connecticut man. Her residence in Vicksburg had given her an opportunity of knowing something of the character of the inhabitants of the far south. Here is an account of a grand bullfight that took place in New Orleans a week ago last Sunday. I will read it to you. And the minister read aloud the following. Yesterday, pursuant to public notice, came off at Gretna, opposite the 4th District, the long-heralded fight between the famous grizzly bear, General Jackson, victor in fifty battles, and the Atacapis Bull, Santa Anna. The fame of the coming conflict had gone forth to the four winds, and women and children, old men and boys, from all parts of the city, and from the breezy banks of Lake Pontchartrain and Borgne, brushed up their Sunday suit and prepared to ace the fun. Long before the published hour, the quiet streets of the Royal Gretna were filled with crowds of anxious denizens flocking to the arena, and before the fight commenced, such a crowd had collected as Gretna had not seen, nor will be likely to see again. The arena for the sports was a cage, twenty feet square, built upon the ground, and constructed of heavy timbers and iron bars. Around it were seats, circularly placed, and intended to accommodate many thousands. About four or five thousand persons assembled, covering the seats as with a cloud, and crowding down around the cage, were within reach of the bars. 
The bull selected to sustain the honor and verify the pluck of Atacapis on this trying occasion was a black animal from the Opelousas, lithe and sinewy as a four-year-old corsa, and with eyes like burning coals. His horns bore the appearance of having been filed at the tips, and wanted that keen and slashing appearance so common with others of his kith and kin. Otherwise it would have been all day with Bruin at the first pass, and no mistake. The bear was an animal of note, and called General Jackson, from the fact of his looking up everything that came in his way, and taking the responsibility on all occasions. He was a wicked-looking beast, very lean and unamiable in aspect, with hair all standing the wrong way. He had fought some fifty bulls, so they said, always coming out victorious, but that neither one of the fifty had been an Atacapis bull, the bills of the performances did not say. Had he attacked Atacapis first, it is likely his fifty battles would have remained unfought. About half-past four o'clock the performances commenced. The bull was first seen standing in the cage alone, with head erect and looking a very monarch in his capacity. At an appointed signal, a cage containing the bear was placed alongside the arena, and an opening being made, Bruin stalked into the battleground, not, however, without sundry stirrings up with a ten-foot pole, he being experienced in such matters, and backwards in raising a row. Once on the battlefield, both animals stood, like wary champions, eyeing each other, the bear cowering low with head upturned and fangs exposed, while Atacapis stood wondering, with his eyes dilated, lashing his sides with his long bushy tail, and pawing up the earth in very wrath. The bear seemed little inclined to begin the attack, and the bull, standing a moment, made steps first backward and then forward, as if measuring his antagonist, and meditating where to plant a blow. Bruin wouldn't come to the scratch no way, till one of the keepers, with an iron rod, tickled his ribs and made him move. Seeing this, Atacapis took it as a hostile demonstration, and gathering his strength, dashed savagely at the enemy, catching him on the points of his horns, and doubling him up like a sack of bran against the bars. Bruin sung out at this, and made a dash for his opponent's nose. Missing this, the bull turned to their about-face, and the bear caught him by the ham, inflicting a ghastly wound. But Atacapis, with a kick, shook him off, and renewing the attack, went at him again, head-on, and with a rush. This time he was not so fortunate, for the bear caught him above the eye, burying his fangs in the tough hide, and holding him as in a vice. It was now the bull's turn to sing out, and he did, bellowing forth with a voice more hideous than that of all the bulls of Bashan. Some minutes stood matters thus, and the cries of the bull, mingled with the hoarse growls of the bear, made hideous music, fit only for a dance of devils. Then came a pause, the bear having relinquished his hold, and for a few minutes it was doubtful whether the fun was not up. But the magic wand of the keeper, the ten-foot pole, again stirred up Bruin, and at it they went, and with a rush. Bruin now tried to fasten on the bull's back, and drove his tusks in him in several places, making the red blood flow like wine from vats of Luna. But Atacapis was plucked to the backbone, and catching Bruin on the tips of his horns, shuffled him up right merrily making the fur fly like feathers in a gale of wind. Bruin cried, Nuff! in bear language, but the bull followed up his advantage, and making one furious plunge full at the figurehead of the enemy, struck a horn into his eye, burying it there, and dashing the tender organ into darkness and atoms. Blood followed the blow, and poor Bruin, blinded, bleeding, and in mortal agony, turned with a howl to leave, but Atacapis caught him in the retreat and rolled him over like a ball. Over and over again this rolling over was enacted, 
and finally, after more than an hour, Bruin curled himself up on his back, bruised, bloody, and dead beat. The thing was up with California, and Anacapis was declared the victor amidst the applause of the multitude that made the heavens ring. There, said he, can you find anything against Connecticut equal to that? The Southerner had to admit that he was beat by the Yankee. During all this time, it must not be supposed that the old gent with the two daughters, and even the young ladies themselves, had been silent. Clotel and they had not only given their opinions as regarded the merits of the discussion, but that sly glance of the eye, which is ever given where the young of both sexes meet, had been freely at work. The American ladies are rather partial to foreigners, and Clotel had the appearance of a fine Italian. The old gentleman was now near his home, and a whisper from the eldest daughter, who was unmarried but marriageable, induced him to extend to Mr. Johnson an invitation to stop and spend a week with the young ladies at their family residence. Clotel excused herself upon various grounds, and at last, to cut short the matter, promised that she would pay them a visit on her return. The arrival of the coach at Lynchburg separated the young ladies from the Italian gent, and the coach again resumed its journey. End of chapter 22